I've selected a reading from a book by my ministerial colleagues, Rebecca Parker and John Burens. Rebecca has been for over a quarter of a century the dean at Starking School for the Ministry in Berkeley. And John Burens is right across the bay doing a developmental ministry at the San Francisco Church. Their book is entitled A House for Hope, The Promise of Progressive Religion for the 21st Century. Here's what Rebecca and John have suggested. We human beings are not so much homo sapiens, for we are neither all that wise nor are we all that self-aware. Rather, We are the animal that makes promises. Curious notion. We are the animal that makes promises. We dwell in the context of relationships, promises, and commitments. Whether we're ducks or humans, we make promises. We then either live in accord with these promises, or we break them and modify them and perhaps renew them. It is our obligations and promises that define who we are. At the beginning of the modern world, they continue, that is at the time of the French and American revolutions, there were three great ideals that were said to walk hand in hand. Liberty, equality, and what was then called fraternity, today we might call the last of these more inclusively, the spirit of kinship. So, liberty, equality, and kinship. In the course of the revolutionary upheaval, however, these three ideals separated and they lost track of each other. In the ensuing Malay, liberty traveled westward on its own from Europe to America. Left to itself, liberty's character changed along the way. It became confused with mere freedom without constraint. It became freedom to exploit others, to exploit our planet, and freedom from the obligations to community and the common good. While liberty migrated westward, equality set forth on its own eastward. Through more revolutions in Russia and China, however, it too changed its character and not for the better. It became the equality of the gulag, of millions of people all waving the same little red book. In the name of enforcing absolute equality, the freedoms of worship, conscience, speech, and association were abolished. And then there was this third ideal, community, relationships, kinship. What happened to kinship? It went into hiding. It went underground. Kinship, the sense that we are all sisters and brothers, we are children of one great mystery, this was the linking ideal of the three. It was the religious principle. And yet modern intellectuals and revolutionaries scorned religion. As a result, this ideal went into hiding among communities of the powerless, 
where a sense of connectedness and kinship, stronger than Western individualism, survived. From there, this religious spirit has gradually re-emerged. It's gradually re-emerged. And it has reappeared in every powerful attempt to reunite the separated. Community and kinship re-emerged during the civil rights movement in America. Kinship arose during the solidarity movement in Poland. Kinship arises whenever we break from the patterns that others have made and create new agreements, new covenants, new promises for being together. Living within these promises entails the difficult task of balancing and of reconciling those three ideals of liberty, equality, and kinship. End of quote, Rebecca Parker and John Burens. Today we'll consider the agreements and promises that we make to one another. Some such promises may be so deeply ingrained in our ways of being and trusting that they remain unwritten and unspoken. Other agreements may be explicit. The question is, are promises really essential to the important work of getting along? The American poet and pacifist William Edgar Stafford, who is a fellow Kansan and a recipient of the National Book Award for Poetry, he wrote a remarkable poem entitled, A Ritual to Read to Each Other. And I have adapted Stafford's poem as a kind of prologue for conversation today. Here's what Stafford writes. If you don't know the kind of person I am, and if I don't know the kind of person you are, then a pattern that others made may prevail in the world. For there is many a small betrayal in the mind a shrug that lets the fragile connections break, sending with shouts the horrible errors of childhood, storming out to play through the broken dike. And so I appeal to a voice, to a remote yet important region in all who gather, a voice that we should consider, lest our mutual life get lost in the dark. It is important that awake people stay awake, lest a breaking connection discourage them to go back to sleep. The signals that we give to one another, yes or no or maybe, should be clear, for the darkness around us is deep. The signals that we give should be clear. The promises that we make should be clear. For the darkness around us is deep. In the foothills of the Zagros Mountains of Iran, amidst the ruins of the ancient city of Susa, French archaeologists made an astounding discovery a little over a century ago. A black rock monolith, seven and a half feet high, made of the igneous rock known as diorite. And at the top of this 
rock is a sculpture showing a Mesopotamian king receiving the insignia of office from the sun god Shamash, who is the Mesopotamian god of justice. Inscribed below, below this sculptured relief is an extensive text of 282 laws written in the cuneiform script known as Akkadian. The text celebrates the piety and justice of Hammurabi, the king of Babylon, in the early 18th century BCE. The laws of King Hammurabi, in fact, far predate the laws of the Hebrew tribes that we find in the Hebrew Bible. Now this discovery, this monolith, caused an immediate sensation. The original now stands at the Louvre in Paris, and there's an exact replica at the Oriental Institute in Chicago, which many of you may have seen. The laws on this monolith deal with day-to-day issues in the ancient Near East. The Code of Hammurabi includes offenses against justice, such as false accusation, offenses against property, such as theft, land and dwelling places, trade and commerce, marriage, family, personal property, laws of agriculture, professional standards for laborers, fair wages, and so forth. The Code of Hammurabi from long ago is an enduring reminder that as human civilizations evolved from nomadic to settled, they made agreements and shared expectations for getting along. Let's fast forward to the present age and the mountains of codes by which we live. Dateline Southern California. 29 families' homes are in directly in the path of a raging wildfire driven by 60-mile-an-hour Santa Ana winds coming in from the desert. Temperatures in the fire exceed 2,000 degrees. There's no hope of saving these homes unless homeowners quickly make a fire break by disking up the dirt in a huge arc surrounding their homes using a tractor so that the dried grass can be turned over. But there's just one small problem, a very small problem. Their homes lie within the habitat of the Stevens kangaroo rat, which is an endangered species. The wildfire shows no respect for the rat's rights. It burns up both the rats and their habitat. As the windswept fire bears down on the homes, it becomes clear that saving the rat's habitat just is not in the cards. However, Local officials cannot make an exception and permit homeowners to disc up the soil to save their homes. After all, a right is a right. The law says nothing about wildfires. And so what happened? 28 of the 29 homes were incinerated. Mr. Michael Rowe was the owner of the 29th home. He went ahead and plowed up his yard anyway. How would it look, he mused, if I get locked up in Folsom Prison because I saved my home? The next week he found himself living in isolation in the one remaining home 
on a charred landscape. A curious monument to unyielding mandates. Okay, what's going on? Instead of adaptive responses amidst life's slings and arrows, we're caught between two extremes. At one extreme is a burgeoning list of rights, laws, entitlements, and freedoms. At the other extreme is an even more burgeoning list of codes and punitive sanctions to constrain freedoms. So we have two opposing fields, each burgeoning more and more freedoms, more and more constraints. What has become of a middle domain? Is there a middle domain? A century ago, the noted English judge, Lord John Fletcher Moulton, he spoke on the subject of law and manners. <clears throat> and he divided all human actions into three domains. The first, the domain of law, where human actions are constrained <clears throat> by laws, bylaws, and so forth. And there are punitive consequences. At the other extreme is the domain of free choice. I may call on you, Dirk, to take over here. I've about lost my voice. Come on up. <clears throat> this is more, by the way. Take it from here. There may be punitive consequences for violations. At the other extreme is the domain of free choice and personal preference, embodying those freedoms that are inherent in our humanity. In between these two regions, Lord Moulton identified a third domain wherein actions are neither constrained by laws nor are we free to behave in any way we choose. Moulton called this middle region obedience to, to the unenforceable. This middle domain is the realm of kindness and respect manners and civility, passion and compassion, caring and forgiveness, trust and appreciation, joy and celebration. I'd like to offer a surmise. I believe that the most telling indicator of health in any congregation, community or family is the breadth of this middle zone. Lord Moulton's middle domain, the region of unenforceable obligations, promises and covenants. How much of the group's, group's time and energy are in this middle region? In my experience, congregations in trouble are there not because of cash flow or staffing or building needs or any other tangible measure. The trouble emerges when they feel squeezed out of options. The middle zone has become not a broad playing field, but a tight wire or a knife edge, allowing little room for experimenting and learning. Such squeezing happens when advocates of more rules claw out turf from one direction, while advocates of unrestrained freedoms claw their way in from the other side, leaving little room for experimenting and developing agility. What is it like in Lord Moulton's middle domain? It's hard work, not for the faint-hearted. Here's a modest example. This is a tag team uh, <laughs> sermon, and 
Tom, when I collapse, I'm going to wave Dirk back in again. This is what you call agility, by the way. Thank you so much, Dirk. My goodness. So what's it like in the middle domain? Here's a modest example. <clears throat> Once upon a time, there were four rabbis who often met to discuss the laws of the Torah and the Midrash and all the other secondary rules and explanations. And regardless of the topic, three of these four rabbis were always in agreement. While the fourth, old Moshe, he was always the odd guy out. <clears throat> and so he got used to hearing from the others. It's three against one. You lose. So one day, amidst another argument, old Moshe, he appealed to higher authority. Oh God, said Moshe, I know in my heart that I am right and they are wrong. Please give me a sign that will prove it to them. Well, it was a beautiful sunny day like today. But as soon as old Moshe finishes his prayer, a storm cloud moves across the sky and it stops directly over the four rabbis. The cloud rumbled and then it faded away. Well, there it is, shouted Moshe. It's a sign from God. See, I'm right. I knew it. The other three pointed out that storm clouds move in all the time. Moshe prays again, Oh God, I need a much bigger sign to show that I'm right and they are wrong. So please, give me a bigger sign. This time, four storm clouds move in and a bolt of lightning slams into a tree on a hill nearby. I told you I was right, said Moshe. His friends insist that what happened is an entirely natural set of events. Moshe was on the verge of praying for a really big sign. But just as he said, Oh God, the sky turned pitch black. Total darkness. The earth shook. The wind howled. And a deep, booming voice said, He's right. <laughs> Old Moishi clasps his hands, turns to the others and says, Well, so they say it's three against two. <laughs> A more down-to-earth example of living in this middle domain in places like People's Church. At the church I served last year, we had a Saturday morning workshop. And the purpose was to consider each participant's view of belonging. What does it mean to belong, to be a member? So we had a Saturday workshop. What are the meanings, implications, and privileges and responsibilities and expectations of belonging. Are there any? And as we started this event, I suggested that we have a provisional agreement. It would apply only for this morning, but this would be our agreement for how we would have 
conversations together. And here's what our proposed agreement said. We gather to share our personal experiences and understandings of what belonging to this church might mean to each of us. We will respect each person's perspectives and participate with presence, open minds, and open hearts. And these will be our guidelines for time and respect. This is an open event. Come and go as you need. Take breaks when you wish. Listen attentively and respect how the available time is distributed among participants. Participate as you're comfortable. Pass if you don't wish to speak. Silence is okay. Determine your own depth of trust and sharing and respect decisions of others. Maintain confidences. Assume personal responsibility using I statements. Avoid interrupting while others are speaking. Wait to be recognized. And respond to others by sharing your own direct experiences, not by giving advice. And acknowledge the differences between each other as valid and worthy of respect. Okay, that was our provisional agreement for a three-hour session on a Saturday morning. So here's my question. To what degree might that sort of provisional agreement be one that you might find helpful on a brief occasion or on a more extended occasion? Would it support your developing of trusting relationships to have that kind of Agreement, or what Lord Moulton calls an unenforceable obligation. It's an obligation, but it's not enforceable with punitive consequences. But it is a solid promise. This middle domain is kind of like a playing field. It has clear boundaries of time and space. It has well-defined goals that are measurable sometimes, with instant replay, sure. And the activities on this playing field very often have agreed upon rules so that nobody gets hurt. The middle domain has real has rules, sure. And there are skilled referees who pay fairly close attention to compliance with the rules. And for more egregious infractions, there may be penalties. Within these agreed-upon limits, there is still enormous space for creativity and improvisation and handoffs. And yes, uh, guards and tackles can occasionally receive passes and have been known to do so. This is the middle domain. It's a broad playing field. So my question, for every community that matters to you is what is the width of this middle zone? I'm convinced that this is the the measure of health in any human community. When is this middle zone a broad playing field and when has it become a tight wire or a knife edge within which there is little room to maneuver because the forces of freedom have clawed their way in from one side and the forces of Litigation and explicit laws have clawed their way in from the other. What is the breadth of this middle zone in communities that really matter to you?
There's one more aspect of this middle zone of walking together that I would highlight. And that is how we communicate to each other, how we share our dreams and inspire others. Often we dream only with two-dimensional diagrams, with timelines, uh, charts, and spreadsheets, and all this is fine as a backdrop. But if you want to convey what matters to you, paint a picture imaginatively. If a picture is worth a thousand words, then a dream is worth a thousand pictures. Or create a song or a logo, a work of art. What might you put in your pictures of what matters to you? Put horizons in the picture so that people have room to expand their landscapes. Put mountains in the picture so that others will understand that the journey may not always be flat and easy going like driving across Kansas. There will be bumps, maybe even some ice ups. Put sun in the picture because it represents warmth. And as you pursue what matters to you, there is something that warms your spirit because you know that you are transforming this world by virtue of your presence. Put pathways in your pictures. Yellow brick roads. Paths give direction, focus, so that as people walk, they will have a sense that they are moving together in a fruitful way. Put humor in your picture. You bet. Clowns in funny costumes, cows with big grinning smiles, cats, ducks. Put flowers in the picture. Because any dream that is worth pursuing, there will be time to stop, to enjoy the flowers. Because the final destination isn't the key. The dream is great not because we arrive. It is great because of what we help to become. We began with Stafford's A Ritual to Read to Each Other, saying, if you don't know the kind of person I am, and if I don't know the kind of person you are, then a pattern that others have made may prevail. I want to close with these words of Diane Ackerman of speaking well of how we walk together. In the name of the daybreak and the eyelids of morning and the wayfaring moon and the night when it departs, I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred, but I will offer myself as a guardian of nature, as a healer of misery, as a messenger of wonder, and as an architect of peace. In the name of the sun and its mirrors and the day that embraces it, and the cloud veils drawn over it, and the uttermost night, and the male and the female, and the plants bursting with seed, and the crowning seasons of the firefly and apple. I will honor all of life, wherever and whenever it may dwell, on earth my home, and in the mansions of the stars. Diane Ackerman.